If you have your Bibles and if you want to follow along, today we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and in particular, verse 20 and 21. And as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word and as we do stop and reflect, I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would help us to see things rightly. Lord, on our own, in our flesh, in our sin, we're quick to dismiss these things. We're quick to move quickly beyond what it is we do wrong because it's uncomfortable. Lord, I don't like to think about my failures. Lord, help us to see ourselves rightly. Help us to see you in your holiness, in your perfection. Help us to see ourselves in our failure and help us to see our great and desperate need for a Savior so that we can marvel at what you accomplished that day on the cross. Lord, help us to respond rightly to the truth of who you are and the atonement, the reconciliation that was possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we do worship you in light of those things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, although you and I might not like to admit it, quite often we think of relationships in terms of an exchange. I give something in a relationship so that I might get something back. And sometimes that's not only understandable, it's perfectly justifiable. You go into a work relationship, a business relationship, and that idea of an exchange makes sense. Goods or services for a particular compensation. A certain amount of working hours for a certain wage or a paycheck at the end, and the exchange is agreed upon by both parties and everything is fair. But there are also times when, although we might not be as quick to admit it because it's much harder to justify, we approach our other relationships with a similar way of thinking. We might be nice at work so that our career path opens up a little bit. We might be friends with someone so that they open up or elevate our social standing a little bit. We might hang around with that person because they have a car big enough to bring everyone back from college for the weekend. We might be kind to our brothers or our sisters as long as they're kind to us or so they don't reveal that particular thing that we hope mom and dad don't find out. And you see that really from young to old, there's the opportunity to consider relationships as something of an exchange. Well, today we're going to focus and meditate for just a moment on a relationship that did bring an exchange, but it's an exchange on an eternally significant scope. Uh, One that you and I desperately needed, but one that we couldn't even imagine or dare to hope for. Because we need reconciliation. We need restoration. To restore something means to make it whole, to put it back to what it was. And in restoration, in relationships, we call that reconciliation, bringing people back together. You and I know what it's like to have broken relationships among one another, among parents, among siblings, among friends. We know what separation feels like, and we know how desperately we want to be reconciled. Well, when Paul talks about reconciliation... He talks about it in a very particular sense. In verse 20, 
He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul and the people that he was ministering with considered themselves ambassadors, bringing a message that wasn't their own, but there was this message from Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There's pleading language there that we don't usually get too deep into. Because it's not very dignified to beg, is it? And yet Paul and his ministry companions there see a need so great that even Paul the Apostle, even Paul a supremely gifted individual, even Paul one who exercised authority in the church and could command obedience, Paul places himself in this position of entreating, of begging, pleading with people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And we needed reconciliation, but we only understand that need for reconciliation if we understand what was broken in the first place. And to do that, we have to back up because the story of Good Friday doesn't start on Good Friday and it doesn't start on the Sunday before on Palm Sunday that we celebrated this last Sunday. And it doesn't start at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem in the manger. The story of Good Friday and the need for Good Friday has to go all the way back to the beginning because in Genesis in the opening pages of scripture, we read that God made all things. That God in omnipotent divine power speaks and creation explodes into existence. He speaks and light is separated from darkness, land from sea. Birds fill the air, fish fill the seas, land animals fill the world that he had made. And then on the sixth day, God speaks and he draws man out of the dust. And he breathes the breath of life into him and he becomes a living soul. And he draws woman out of his side. And man and woman are created alone out of all of creation in the image of God. And they are made for fellowship with their creator. God walks in the garden with his people. But we know that that doesn't last. Satan comes and he challenges the word of God. Has God really said, surely you won't die if you break that one rule that he's given you? What Satan says is that that God who made you, that God who gave you everything, is somehow holding out on you. He's keeping something from you. He's withholding what is really good. He knows that in the day that you'll eat of it, you won't die. Instead, you'll be like him, so why not eat and find out all that it is uh, that you're missing? And of course, we know Adam and Eve sin. They eat the fruit. And as soon as they disobey God, the path of mankind in general is radically altered. Because as soon as sin comes in, we see separation. Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and shame for the first time enters the human existence. They make for themselves whatever coverings they're able to and then they hear the sound of God walking in the garden and for the first time, the sound of God walking in the garden isn't the welcome sound of a friend. It brings terror and shame and they hide. And the first words from God after that sin, where are you? Not because he didn't know, but because the separation had to be made clear. Sin separates. From the very beginning, sin has broken the relationship between God and man. And it's easy enough to think of it as something that happened a long time ago in a land far, far away. Something that was the problem for Adam and Eve. But the problem is that it doesn't stop there because sin spreads. In another writing in the book of Romans, Paul says that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
That sin problem wasn't their problem. That sin problem is our problem. It is the universal problem of mankind, and we don't really have to fight to see it. We might not want to admit it, but it doesn't take long to see that we all share in that same failure. Because even if we take the most very basic elements of God's law, those Ten Commandments that we all know that are on buildings in Sunday school classrooms, and many of us have them memorized, we don't get very far on those before we realize that we failed. To worship God alone and to put nothing before Him, and yet we are quick to make idols. Maybe not ones made of stone and wood, but things that are quick to take God's place in our heart. Other priorities, other needs, other desires that take Him off of the throne and put self firmly in His place. We lie. We steal. We want what other people have. And even in those things, we're quick to justify ourselves. Well, I'm not as bad as I could be. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I'm not as bad as most of my friends. You should see the school that I go to. You should see the rest of my family. You should see my spouse. You should see my coworkers. You think I'm bad. You haven't seen anything. At least I'm not somebody else. And of course, we can always find that somebody else who makes us feel like we are probably okay. The problem is that's not the standard. That's not the standard any more than I could drive down the road at 100 miles an hour and hope that the policeman who pulls me over has seen somebody go faster in the past. There's an objective standard for what is right and wrong that has nothing to do with me. It's an authority outside of myself, and that is the same reality that we face when we're talking about sin. The goal, the standard, is not be holy so long as you're a little bit holier than others. It's be holy, God says, as I am holy The standard is his perfection. And so when Paul pleads with these people to be reconciled, what you and I have to understand is that we have that same need for reconciliation. We might be better than... The problem is we fall short. We heard it in Greg's reading that all have fallen short, that there's no one who does what's good. There's no one that seeks after God. And the wages of sin, the rightful return for our sin is death. It always has been. From the very beginning, sin separates and sin kills. And we find ourselves there. Alienated and separated from the God who made us. Not because he's unfair. Not because some injustice has taken place, but because he is just. And because we are guilty. And when we realize that, when we realize that break, that brings up another realization. And that is that there might be a need for reconciliation, but we need to know how to make that happen. Paul says, he pleads with us to be reconciled, to be restored to God. But how in the world can that happen? How does a perfectly holy God become restored to a sinful people? How can a holy God be with those who are not holy? Well, under the law in the Old Testament, God gave them away. God said to Israel, I'm going to dwell among you, and here's the only way that that happens. And he gives them a tabernacle and a temple. He gives them a system of sacrifices. And God in His mercy says sin brings death. The wages of sin is still death. But God in His mercy says something can stand in your place. I cannot ignore sin but I will allow something to take your place in death. 
And so the people were able to bring a sacrifice to stand in their place. Bulls, goats, birds, grain, offerings to restore and maintain that relationship. And it couldn't just be anything. You couldn't just bring whatever sheep you wanted. You couldn't go grab Scruffy or Old One-Eye. That one that thinning out the herd would probably do good for in the end. No, you had to bring the best. That which would cover sin had to be spotless. Perfect. The problem was even the best lamb is just a lamb. Even the finest animal that you could imagine is still just an animal. And the blood of bulls and goats could only cover sin for a time. It satisfied God. It covered, but only for a time. And that whole system looked forward to and anticipated and really demanded something else. Something better, something lasting. And that's what we stop and remember today. The Lamb who could finally and fully satisfy the wrath of God poured out against the sins of His people. Jesus Christ, whose life did not begin in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ, who was with the Father in the beginning, who was God, very God, the active agent in creation, the one worshipped by angels from eternity past, became like His creatures. Jesus Christ, who would know glory, but then would come to know humility. And he would walk on the earth that he created. He would become tired. He would know hunger. He would know rejection. And although he lived a life that was truly a human life, he was distinct from you and I in one all-important way, and that is that he never sinned, never failed. Not one rebellion, not one slip, not one fall, not one failure in word or in thought or in attitude or in affection, nothing A kind of obedience that you and I can barely get our minds around and yet he exhibited every day of his life perfectly. And yet at the end of that one perfect life, the only one who had no reason to die, no sin that would bring separation, no sin that would bring death was led to death. Handed over to wicked sinful men. Hung on a cruel cross to suffer the rage and the wrath of men, although that was only the faintest bit of what he suffered. Because the wrath of men wasn't what needed to be satisfied. What had to be dealt with was the justice of a holy God when it comes to sin. And on the cross, as darkness covers the land in the middle of the day, the Father pours out His wrath on the Son. And He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In the darkness of noon, just outside of the walls of Jerusalem, the perfect Lamb of God hung in my place.
the stain of my sin was charged to his account. The rejection of a holy God that should have been mine was placed on the perfect son. The anguish and the torment that ought to have been mine and yours was his. And that's not fair. And it can't be. The gospel is not a message of fairness. It's a message of unimaginable mercy. Justice. Because sin is dealt with, but mercy. In that the one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And if that were the end of the story, if that were as far as God took it, it would be unimaginably merciful. If God had done nothing more than to set us back to where we started, some kind of right standing. If our sin had simply been dealt with, that was more gracious than we could imagine. But there's more because there's a hope in reconciliation that goes far beyond a simple cleansing of sin as if simple cleansing of sin actually means anything. There's nothing simple about that. But there's so much more there because He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is as if you and I stood before a judge condemned and absolutely guilty and the judge declares us pardoned and right. A right standing in the eyes of the law, but then that judge does that because He has placed our penalty on His Son. And then it is as if that same judge invites us back to his home. Not simply releasing us back onto the streets to fend for ourselves, but brings us into his home. Calls us his own. Promises us a piece of his inheritance. And if a judge did that in our society, we would say that it's remarkable. And yet the holy God of all of creation gave His Son so that we might live eternally with Him. And that exchange goes two ways. Our sin, our filthiness, our dirtiness placed on Christ. Our rejection, our failure placed on Christ. But that righteousness, that perfection, that right standing, that fellowship that Christ deserved and always had with the Father is then placed on us. Our sin for His righteousness. Our condemnation for His fellowship. And you and I, ruined, failed, fallen sinners. No hope of working our way back to that God we alienated ourselves from. No hope of ever doing enough right to overcome the wrong that we've done. Are called sons and daughters. Heirs to an eternal kingdom. And all of its promises. Brought into the family of God. And that's where real hope comes from. It's worth stopping and it is worth reflecting. Whether you've heard this message one time or a hundred times. Because the plea is still there. Come to Christ. And you might have heard that in a hundred different ways. And you might have heard attached to that a number of different reasons. Uh, come to Christ, and He'll take the burden of your pain. And He will, but maybe not in the way that you hoped. Come to Christ, 
and he'll fix what's wrong. And he will. But maybe not in the way that you hoped. Because the plea is to come to Christ. Not so that he can take some part or some piece of this temporary failing world and make it better for a little while. The plea is to come to Christ so that he can meet the only eternal need that you and I have. To be restored to the God who made us. And in doing that, there is hope. Not hope that circumstances will change. Not hope that we don't live in pain or sickness. Not hope that there will never be conflict, but hope in the midst of that because Christ has overcome sin and death. Hope in the midst of that because we have a living hope and an eternal promise. Hope in the fact that although we will continue to sin and fall, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. We don't usually stop and think. We don't often have the time. And if we're honest, we don't typically have the inclination because stopping and meditating, thinking about my sin, is an uncomfortable thing. And yet tonight, the invitation is to do just that. For this evening, we need to linger for a moment at the foot of the cross. Not that we forget that Sunday is coming and all the joy of the resurrection that that brings, that is appropriate to hold on to, but we need to linger at the foot of the cross to ensure that we have actually come to grips with why it was necessary in the first place. We need to remember the God who created us, and we need to remember the sin that separated us from him. You and I need to think carefully about where we think our goodness comes from. As you sit here tonight, as you watch online, as you ponder this throughout the day and the week, are you hoping that you're good enough because you're slightly better than? Are you hoping that you're good enough because you're trying as hard as you can? Are you hoping that you're good enough because you're a little bit better than you were last week and you're certainly better than that other guy? Or do you come to tonight and you finally, maybe for the first time, realize that it doesn't matter who you're better than, you'll never be perfect. And as maybe distressing as that sounds, that is a good part of the difficult news. Because in understanding that you'll never meet the standard, there's a freedom from trying to work your way there. Work your way back to God and you'll spend the rest of your life exhausted and running after a goal that you'll never know if you met. Try to be better than the next person. And the problem is you'll always not only find a person worse than you, but you'll always find someone a little bit better than you. Come to the foot of the cross and realize that there was only one who was perfect, only one who was righteous, only one who could satisfy God's standard. And he offers an exchange your sin for his righteousness. And the cost was great. His life for mine. And the cost to us is merely this. Faith and repentance. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No work attached to that. Understand that Christ did what you and I could not. And then surrender your life and live for him instead. As we come to the end of our Good Friday service, we want to give you a moment, an opportunity to remember, to reflect, to repent, to, to stop in the quietness of your own heart, in the middle of your and my very busy life, and to think. And if you have never come to the place where you understand who this Jesus is or why we celebrate on Good Friday, although you might have heard it a hundred times, although you might know the intellectual facts, if this has never actually impacted your heart, I pray, I plead with you tonight, be reconciled to God. Eternity hangs in the balance. If you have come to Christ Take a moment of quiet and see if there be any hurtful way left in you that needs repenting of. Any reconciliation, any restoration, first between you and God and then between you and others that you might need to work through. Perhaps take a few moments to think through whether there's anybody that needs to hear you plead with them to be reconciled to the God that you have been reconciled to. It's not often that you and I beg people. Our pride doesn't usually let us. But if this is the only thing of eternal importance that isn't worth pleading with. And we're going to come to the next portion in a way that we don't usually do this. We're going to celebrate communion together. Now, you need to understand, if you're a visitor, you need to understand if you're a regular attender and perhaps... Uh, communion is something you've done a thousand times. I want you to reflect. If you do not know Christ, if this is not something that you have ever wrestled with, then please don't partake in communion, not because we don't like you or not because we want you to feel different, but because we don't want to confuse the issue. Coming to church won't reconcile you to God. Taking communion is not what reconciles us to God. It is faith in the work of Christ that reconciles us to God. So first understand that what we're doing is a celebration, a physical celebration of a spiritual reality. And if that is not you, I would love to talk with you about why that is and how that gets restored. It's not a 12-week class. It's not a 12-step program. It's confession of your sin, repentance, and faith. And if that is you, if you are a believer, we would invite you to celebrate communion with us in a way that we don't always do that. Uh, our musicians are going to play for a bit. And you'll have the chance to quiet your hearts, to reflect, to remember, to repent, to rejoice in our salvation. And then the elements will be up here in the front. And we would invite you, when you're ready, either come up and grab them or send a representative up for your family and they can come and gather them. If you cannot get out of your seat, we understand. Raise your hand slightly and one of our ushers will bring those to you. So we'll make sure that you have them. And then again, in the quietness of your hearts, simply sit and reflect. And when you're ready, you can take those elements either as an individual, with your family, 
And as we do that, we remember that this is what the Lord left for us. That on the night when the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We remember that in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And as you take those on your own timing, after the music, there will be another song, so you have time to do that. But remember, reflect, repent, and let me pray for us as we start that process. God, you're so good and gracious to us to think that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he didn't die for the good, the worthy, the rich, the wealthy, the influential, the powerful. He died for the weak, the helpless, the ruined, the rebel. Lord, as we come before you tonight, I pray that we think rightly about you and about us. I pray that if there are those here in the building or those listening that have never wrestled with their sin, that have never wrestled with the distance that sin has created, the wage that is death, I pray that they would do that tonight. Lord, I pray that for those of us who have been saved, reconciled through the work of Christ, that we repent often and that we rejoice in the salvation and the forgiveness that you continually provide. And Lord, put that gospel in our mouths in anticipation of your coming and your kingdom, in anticipation of the fact that you who came in humility will come in power Give us boldness as we plead with others to be reconciled to God through the work of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.